the Inspired Women Inspire Women podcast. This is Sila Farani Simmons, and today I have a very special guest for you. The guest that I have for you today is an artist, she's an entrepreneur, she's an HR professional, and she's a fighter and a survivor. Her name is Robin Joy Katzba. Robin and I met somewhere around the mid-2000s. So, Robin, you and I met, I think, back in 2005 or so, 2005, 2006? Yes. When we were just <laughs> young little 10-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it feels, yes. To know Robin is to know that laugh. She's a vibrant personality. Don't take yourself too seriously because there's a lot of stuff that happens in life that you cannot control. I could pick myself apart all day and some days I do and I, I'm critical, but most of the time if I can't snap my jeans on, if I'm just having a moment, if I trip over my own foot or I laugh before anybody else and I laugh loud. And in fact, this is what I tell her I remember the most about her. So both you and I had worked at uh, Laureate Education at the time. I was in training and I believe you're in recruiting. Yes. The thing that I remember the most about you is just a big genuine smile, this amazing sense of humor. You could get the stuffiest people to just totally loosen up and smile and laugh um, I remember your amazing dance moves at the <laughs> <laughs> company functions. Yeah, I still got those. That's, that's always a good quality in HR to have sweet dance moves. But as the saying goes, Robin's waters run deep. Beneath the good looks and the big laugh lies the heart of a warrior and a survivor. She is made of grit and resilience. Six years ago, Robin, then only 31 years old, became a young widow. The circumstances around her husband's death were complicated. She lost Rob to suicide. And you will hear more about that later. For all of these years that I've been Robin's friend on Facebook and on social media, I've seen these major life events unfold on her timeline. What is remarkable is Robin's consistent effort to find meaning in tragedy and to turn it into a triumph. I've seen her celebrate Rob's life and build a legacy around the person that he was. Although I personally never had the opportunity to meet Rob through Robin's efforts, it's easy to get a sense of who Rob was. You will hear more about this later on in the podcast. For now, here's a more thorough introduction to who Robin is in her own words. So, um, you know... Well, thank you. Now you all know about my dance moves. Um, a little bit about me. Um, I'm 38 years old. I grew up um, in the Maryland area. Um, I am one of three daughters to my parents, who I'm very lucky to still have in my life. I grew up, you know, in the suburbs of Ellicott City, Maryland. Um, my parents adopted myself and my two sisters, who are... Um, each uh, two years older than me and the other one two years older than that. Um, and they, my sisters were adopted from Korea and um, I was adopted uh, not too long after that um, through the state of Maryland. 
growing up, I it just was completely normal that my sisters were Korean. And like I said, I used to ask people like, where are your Korean sisters? Like, this was just the norm for me. Um, so my, my mother, um, I think, did a fabulous job about making sure that I understood from a very young age um, that I was adopted and what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, we had books that she read um, to us or gave to us, and, and she really always explained it as, you know, your dad and I could not have children, and um, we wanted children more than anything, and, and then went through explaining what adoption was and what it meant and um, how special we were because um, we were chosen and how loved we were. Um, and so I just really knew at a young age um, that I was adopted and I used to tell everybody, you know, it was, it was my badge of honor. I'm like, I'm special because I was chosen and I was adopted. You know, I, I was always very shy, as you can tell. Um, I, but, I know this about you. I know how shy you are. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I was really, really proud, especially as a child. Um, you know, knowing that my sisters and I were all chosen and I knew my sisters came together, like, a, I guess I associated as like a, a bundle deal. You know? <laughs> um, my mom used to joke that I was on layaway and they couldn't get me right away. So they had to wait until I was paid for. And, you know, it's always like a joke in our house. But, um, you know, and still to this day, I, I, I I still feel special and I still feel like adoption is such a gift Yeah. Um, and so grateful. As I mentioned before, Robin and I have maintained contact via social media and throughout the years I've seen pictures of her and her lovely parents, sisters, nieces and nephews. The image that I have of Robin here is of a fun, beautiful aunt, a sweet daughter and sister. So I grew up in a really wonderful kind of cultured environment where I just thought every one of my neighbors had Korean sisters at home. <laughs> um, diversity was something I was really accustomed to. Um, my family raised us all Jewish. We were all bat mitzvah and, you know, so grew up um, and went to college um, in state at Towson University and spent most of my life living in Maryland and, um, all in all, my uh, career has been um, really centered around working in recruiting and human resources, uh, even though my major was graphic design and painting, but I still take part in that in my day-to-day -day and uh, create as much as I can, and I love the artistic outlet. Right now, I do executive strategy, um, still in education. Uh, I'm working in the K-12 through sector now. And then I started my own business doing uh, kids painting and uh, teaching adults how to uh, paint on wine glasses or any sort of drinking vessel as a, a that's just another way of being creative. <laughs> and, you know, that's one of the greatest things also that I've um, noticed with you is you don't do just one thing, right? No. Like you're <laughs> you're constantly doing a number of things. Tell me a little bit more about um the different lines of work that you do for your own business? A few years ago, um, well, I guess it kind of goes back. I, Being an art major and things like that, I always try to keep my hand in something artistic, whether it was drawing with my nieces and nephews or sketching or 
you know, always trying to find a creative outlet because I, that's just runs through my, my, my veins. So, um, I really was looking to do something creative. And a few years ago I started instructing with paint night, um, as a way of just kind of trying to meet more people and get into different social circles. I had always been painting at home. And so paint night gave me an opportunity to really, um, you know, see what you could do as far as turning art into a business and mm-hmm. it didn't just have to be teaching or instructing. So, um, a short time after that, I actually left paint night and went out on my own. Um, I guess it kind of started with just posting things on social media and then people would like it or they'd say, wow, can you send that to me or, or do this? And so, mm-hmm. I, um, I started getting people interested in my art and then I started painting wine glasses as well because that was when Etsy was launching and I'd see things online and I'm like, I'm not going to buy that. I could do that. <laughs> and so that was really when I started um, kind of trying different mediums. And so handmade jewelry, painting on wine glasses, and then I found a way to teach for paint night. And then I decided, you know what, I think I could do this on my own. And so to do something different, I, I started teaching people how to paint designs on, on wine glasses. So the, a very similar social concept. I'd host events at bars and restaurants and post where I was going to be and I'd sell tickets. And it got really good traction around the bar scene in the Baltimore city area. And I've, I've always had a good social network. So I think people, you know, I was able to really start my business um, just really through Facebook and, and word of mouth. So, uh, last year i formally launched my own company called wine 30. Um, and that was really the, the start of it with doing the wine glass painting events. And so I started selling tickets for them and then I would get booked for private events and fundraisers. And I did a lot of donations to, um, local, um, charities. Like I would always be the person they called or I'd volunteer to do door prizes and it really helped get my name out there. And then recently my pride and joy is doing children's parties. So I started working, um, and finding a way to kind of reach that market. And so I do canvas painting parties for kids. And so the main difference of anyone's ever attended a wine and paint night or something like that. Obviously these are children. So we call it, you know, it's sip and <laughs> sip juice and paint. Um, but I actually hand draw each canvas. And so sometimes I'm doing 10 and sometimes I'm doing 30 and it's really wonderful for the parents because it's completely customized to whatever the theme is. Um, I absolutely love children and the joy on children's faces when they are creating because unlike adults, they're not self-critical Yeah, and they are so joyful and wonderful. And no matter if they paint the whole thing blue or they take an hour and paint within the lines, they love it. Um, and it's really brought me so much joy and positive energy doing this. And that part of the business has really taken off. So listen, in all seriousness, these painting parties are as amazing as they sound. Robin has a Facebook page dedicated to her business. It's called Creative Canvases, Robin Joy Creative. And you can see pictures of beaming faces of children proudly holding up their custom drawn canvases or pictures of adults holding their hand-painted wine glasses, and it seriously is a sight to behold. It's a pretty cool gig and worth your time to check it out. 
So at the beginning of this podcast, you heard me talk about Robin as a survivor and a young widow. When I invited Robin to be part of this podcast, I didn't really know whether or not she would want to share her experience of living through her husband Rob's suicide. In fact, I feel it is important to note that Robin's success as a business owner, a friend, a sister, daughter, and simply as an authentic, kind, and loving woman itself would provide enough material for a show to highlight inspiring women. However, as I found, true to Robin's nature and her courageous approach to life, she chose to be very open and share this experience, and also to talk about how she used tragedy as a means to find perspective in life and motivation to continue living her best life. This is an example of resilience and grit at its best. Well, the whole relationship on how I met my husband and his journey and, and how that shaped me is, um, is something that's really, um, it's really, really shaped who I am and that whole experience. Um, the circumstances under which um, my husband, his name was Rob, met, it was interesting. We got, uh, we met at a networking event. And the long and the short of it is, is that I didn't realize until we were probably on our second or third date that um, Rob had been widowed about seven months before we met. He was 10 years older than me, uh, was 36, and I just thought that he had this boyish charm about him. Um, yeah. Something funny when you show up in a suit to a networking event and you end up spending the whole night talking to the guy drinking beer and flip-flops. <laughs> Don't think that was the purpose of the event, but I ended up <laughs> meeting my husband there. Yes. Well, well um, the guy with the flip-flops probably stands out, right? Yes. <laughs> and that's what I really liked about him. He was very relaxed, um, very chill, you know, definitely the least stuffy person in the in the room. And so I just enjoyed our time. Um, and then, you know, I, I came to find out that he had lost his wife in a car accident about wow. seven months before we met. And it, it actually took place on the on Christmas. Um, so he um, was driving home from Christmas and the car flipped and they were both ejected and she died in his arms in the middle of the street. And it's one of those things where when you hear the story, it sounds like a plot line on Dynasty or a show or something. You're like, this cannot be real. This yeah. man in flip-flops who is standing in front of me has gone through a tragedy that I can't imagine. Mm. And I think at 26, I was just like, well, I like him. This doesn't scare me off. It didn't deter me. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to keep dating. And so we did. Um, and, you know, I think I just wanted to make him happy and I wanted to take care of him. Now, for the year and a half that we dated, I'm not going to say that it was easy. Um, Rob had a lot of denial and I think guilt in a lot of ways about the death of his wife um, because he was driving and they, it would manifest in a lot of ways. Um, anytime the holiday season would come around, he completely shut down. Mm. Um, we, the house that he lived in was still theirs and he never took the pictures off the walls and and things like this and in retrospect you know I see so much now that were signs but when you're 26 and in love you're like 
he's just got to go through it. And yeah. so I loved him with every ounce of me. And I think I tried to love him to be well, but I was in love and um, I, I just went with it. And um, we talked about getting married. And, you know, like I said, I think I was probably on a timeline with him and not taking into consideration all the, uh, you know, what he had been through and that he'd probably need more time. I was trying to treat it as much as a normal relationship uh, that that you would know at 26. You know, you're like, oh, it's been two years. You know, where's the ring kind of thing. Um, and so we ended up getting married about a year, uh, a year later. So we had been together maybe almost three years and then and then got married between the engagement and the um, actual dating um, and so yeah we, we got married and then at, at about six months into it was when you know there were still things in the house um, that were hers the closet was still full of her clothes and at that point I felt as his wife that I needed to say you know, do you want to start donating things? Do you yeah. want to, you know, I, I always had respected his relationship um, with her. Mm -hmm. uh, her name was Fran. And I always said that my relationship was one of three hearts, mine, his, and hers. And, um, uh, you know, it was, loving a widow is a different type of love and you have to be respectful of that to make it work but you also have to have the respect of your relationship mm -hmm. and I six six or so months into our marriage I got the opportunity with our company Loria um, to be promoted and to move out to Arizona so mm -hmm. I looked at this as an opportunity where we could kind of focus on us let's get out of the house let's try to make a you know a fresh start for us in our future um and and so that's kind of where our relationship kind of changed and and i think he realized that something needed to give like he needed to to look at me as his wife and i needed to feel that and you know even though we were married we were still living in a lot of his past if mm -hmm. that makes sense um so we i he ended up being on board with it, especially after we flew out to Arizona and there were palm trees and the weather and he could wear his flip-flops all year long and he actually really embraced it and that meant the world to me. And we ended up moving out there and got a beautiful home with the pool and he grilled every day and, um, you know, we had definitely, um, we thought we were living in paradise yeah. for quite a while. Um, so when things really changed was with it just being the two of us, you're really forced to look at each other and look at your relationship. So a few years into us being there, um, you know, we didn't have a ton of friends and, and our neighborhood was full of people with children and we didn't have children. Um, we began trying and were unsuccessful and I think that put some additional strain on us. You know, holidays came around. There was still a lot of the same emotional response. And on top of that, um, Rob's drinking really increased. And he was always a beer drinker. Um, you know, we enjoyed our, our wine and our beer and, and things like that. But um, at night after I would go to bed, 
um, I started to notice that in the morning when I wake up, there could be 10 to 15 beer cans, you know, in the recycling. Like we would fill one of those giant recycling bins like yeah. in a week. Um, and so, you know, that really um, increased while we were out there. And at the point where, um, you know, it really started becoming something that I noticed more and more and I would address it with him and he became, he would become more withdrawn, you know, over time. And I think it was that he didn't have his circle of friends there. Just the two of us, I was at the office all the time and he worked from home. I think he was alone with his thoughts a lot. It, it started to become really lonely in our relationship. A lot of things, you know, were, were playing into this and, uh, you know, without making this a nine hour um, <laughs> interview, I think um, it came to the point where I started to feel really isolated. Um, you know, every night um, during the week, he would kiss me goodnight and tuck me in. And then he'd stay up until two o'clock in the morning, yeah. you know, drinking and watching TV. And I so, think it's important to note that you're a pretty social person, right? Like yes. you're, you're an extrovert, you, you get energy from people. I think that's an important piece to note. Is that, do you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And so, you know, for, for Rob and I, you know, he was my best friend, you know, we got along great, you know, but as far as feeling like a wife and someone that was cherished and someone you confide in, mm -hmm. he never talked to me about emotions, uh, how he was feeling. I think our relationship can be summed up in me saying I love you and him saying I love you too. So he was never one in the, all the time that we were together to say I love you first. And so I really think that encapsulated a lot of our relationship. It was like I was pulling for that. I was waiting for the day when one day he would say it first, right? And I could say I love you too. But I think that's a really important thing to note because I look back on it and I think this whole time I was trying to fix him to love me the way that I needed to be loved. Yeah. And with a person who didn't deal with his grief, who didn't go through therapy, he was self-medicating at this point. And it hurt me to the point because I, you know, I was his wife, um, but I always felt like his heart was with Fran. You know, and um, after a while, it, it almost became like a, I felt like the other woman. And it wasn't a resent thing for me. It was a loneliness. Um, I could never resent him for, for loving and losing. You know, mm -hmm. I needed that love and that energy towards me. And after not, you know, being, you know, trying to have kids and then he just didn't want to go through um, everything that it takes to be tested. And he said, I don't want to make this a science experiment. And I just felt like he gave up on, mm -hmm. on us. And I'm not saying that I was perfect in all of this or that I've been this, you know, that I knew what I was doing either. Mm -hmm. Because after a certain point, you just feel so lonely and you get tired of kind of being the one that always seems like they're trying to fix it, yeah. trying to make it better. So... Um, it got to the point where I was just really, um, really lonely and I was really sad. 
and I'd try to talk to him about it and he'd say, you know, I'll try to be better. I'll try to be better. Mm -hmm. I really don't think, Sila, that he understood uh, what that meant or how I needed to be loved. And I don't think that I was probably able, you know, to keep telling him, this is what I need from you. This is what I need. Because you get to the point where you're just tired of, you know, speaking. so it got to the point where I decided that I wanted to, um, uh, I thought that it was best if we, we separated. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried counseling, although not that long. Um, and in counseling, it just came up a lot of this resentment, um, uh, a lot of, you know, emotions that came out on both sides. Um, and things kind of started deteriorating quickly after that. So that was probably around March, 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a counseling session on, on a Friday, um, we had both decided that we didn't want, we didn't see a, a light at the end of the tunnel. We talked about moving back to Maryland selling the house and going our separate ways, you know, mm-hmm. so, so it could be closer to family and friends. Um, and then really in the course of a weekend, you know, our friend who was a realtor came over to look at the house on Saturday, um, showed us the comps, uh, you know, we'd be losing money. It was, a uh, not a great situation. It was really stressful. Um, I was staying at a friend's house at that point Sunday, uh, the that Sunday of that same weekend, I got a call from Rob saying that he needed some help packing some things up and would I come over? And I told him that I'd be there around one. Um, I left North Scottsdale and had to come all the way to Chandler, Arizona, which is, could be about 40 minutes. Um, and when I got to the house, I, I couldn't find Rob. And I pulled in to the driveway and noticed that he had left the garage door open and was parked in the middle of the garage. And I went into the house and um, music was playing and I couldn't find him anywhere. It turns out that, um, you know, what I was actually walking into would be a day that completely changed my life because I was too late and Rob had committed suicide that day. And the reason why it called me there was so that I would find him. And so the song that was playing was actually our wedding song that he had left on for me. And I think, you know, and what I know now, and it's been six years that, you know, that was not my husband. That day, the things that he said in his note, and, you know, the way that he he had me come over and everything like that, you know, he was, the biggest pacifist, um, loved the Grateful Dead. He had three cats. He would have had 20 if he could. I, the man was gentle and kind and hilarious. And 
you know, he loved his, his Maryland sports team and he loved his music and, you know, he loved just his friends and, and people. And I know that he loved me, but I think that he was broken. I think the thought of the pressure and everything about us not being together and his, un, you know, his grief that he never dealt with all manifested and you know I always say that and I know now that you never understand um, what someone who's going through that is thinking but I do know that they feel like they're probably more of a burden alive or their pain needs to end Um, but once someone's made up their mind to do it especially in that manner they, they are determined and I saw no warning signs, you know, and my life forever changed that day. And it was just one of those things that absolutely has transformed me. I think about it even today, like bringing it up. And sometimes I just, you just can't believe that that's real. Like that's your life. Like that really, really happened. You really saw that because as I sit here six years from now, you know, six years later talking to you, you think about this journey that you've been on and the things you've accomplished and the life that, that you've tried to live and the beauty that you've still been able to see. And even going through such a tragedy, like I've had so many wonderful, positive experiences since he's passed that he didn't get to see, you know, and, um, and, and people that I've been able to talk to and connect with and touch and, you know, build beautiful relationships with that he doesn't have that opportunity. And, um, it really, some days it feels like 10 years, <laughs> some days it feels like six minutes, you know, but it's something that, you know, was the most pivotal moment in my life. One of the things that um, has amazed me watching just from the sidelines is how you've managed to celebrate your uh, marriage and Rob's life through the work that you're doing for suicide awareness and the annual walks that you do in Baltimore. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, So after Rob died, um, I'm moved back to Baltimore. It was where my family was, um, where the headquarters of our company were. They were incredible in allowing me to transfer back. Um, they took great care of me. And so when I got back to Baltimore, um, and, and as you've alluded to, I've never really been a shy or, you know, quiet person. And it didn't take me long to really want to transform this tragedy into something more meaningful for his memory and also for me. I started in Baltimore going to survivor of suicide meetings and um, because it's such a unique loss and the one thing that I found was that you know there were groups that 
um, for, for people who were going through cancer. There were groups for leukemia. There were groups for, uh, you know, breast cancer or, um, you know, other types of illnesses. But there was, there's such a stigma I found with suicide because mm -hmm. even when I would tell people what happened, the minute you say that your husband died, the first thing they say is, oh my God, how? And they're expecting you to be like, it was a car accident. It was, And when you say suicide, people's faces change. And it changed the way that I felt about it, Sila. That, when I would tell people, um, the way that they reacted, yeah like I said that he was a mass murderer you know mm -hmm. or that it was uh, it, and I wanted to change that stigma it didn't make me love him any less it didn't mean that his life didn't matter because of the way he died and it mm -hmm. was at a point when I saw someone's jaw drop and they didn't know what to say that I was just like I got this has to change so uh, through going through the Suicide Survivors Group, I found out about organizations like the AFSP, uh, which is the American Federation for Suicide Prevention. And I would just go to their website and I'd read all the resources. And never did I find something for young widows, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was another category that I'm in. Here I am, 31 years old. My husband had committed suicide. I have no one to talk to about it because I'm mm -hmm. tired of seeing people's face go white. And so I found the AFSP and I found people who had lost people like me and that I could talk to. And then I found out that they had these community walks and all I wanted to do was just be a part of it. I didn't want to feel isolated. I didn't want to feel this stigma. I didn't want to feel like I was so alone in this. And my friends were wonderful and my family was wonderful, but I started talking more about it and posting about it on social media. and then. They have these community walks where every single person that attends there has been touched by suicide in some ways. And they do these big walks. I mean, it could be small like in Baltimore, it's, it's a few hundred people, or big like in DC where it's thousands of people who walk. And it is the only time, I remember the first time I went, I had a walking team and we raised $2,000. Um, and I was so proud and we had t-shirts made and everything. I, for the first time, felt like I was a part of something and I was not alone. And people yeah. around me had lost people and I've met other spouses um, and family members and there was no stigma. And it changed how I felt about it and how I think my friends and family felt about it too. So listening to Robin share her story with grace, humility, and authenticity blew me away. And I wanted to know, as a person who has navigated loss and tragedy, and as someone who consistently works to direct her own life in positive ways, what advice does she have for us and how to best overcome adversity? I think a lot of my, what turned into resiliency was that quitting was never going to be an option for me. I saw what not to do, how not to grieve. With everything after uh, Rob lost Fran, he didn't talk about her. He held on to that guilt. He bottled it up. And I know not everybody 
is as vocal as I am. And that's not their thing. And I don't think it's about putting your whole self out there, but it's finding out how to transform something that is a tragedy in your life. You know, whether it's the loss of a spouse or a loss of a job or, you know, any, whatever a tragedy is to someone or, you know, a loss of a parent. It's about, you know, quitting is not an option. Suicide is not an option. It was never on the table for me. So you're either going to go the route of bottling it all up and trying to deal with it or turning it into a purpose. I think that's what fueled, you know, what you're referring to as my resiliency is because I refused to let his life be in vain. I refused to be a victim of it as well. And I think, you know, how it transformed in my life or how it, um, you know, how I, how it progressed in my life was through advocacy work, speaking out about it, uh, for him because he cannot. Um, but also I think the first time I ever really spoke out about it and posted something about it on an anniversary, I got a, I got private messages from people telling me they had gone through the same thing or thanking me for putting it out there. And that fueled me. I really think that getting positive feedback or having someone say thank you or thank you for sharing that has really driven me to want to do even more. And it's been Rob's memory, his life, a new purpose, and it's really given mine a new purpose. So for me, that was my resilience was that quitting was never an option. I've got to push through this. Mm -hmm. And the motivation that I got from the love of others. Yeah. And, and, you know, I can tell you, uh, I didn't know Rob personally, but you've done such a beautiful job preserving his memory and celebrating his legacy that through, through your celebrations over the last, you know, six or so years, five or so years, I think when I started seeing you share more about Rob, I actually feel like I know him and I'd never even met him, you know, and I have an appreciation for, you know, this fun loving guy who loved Rush and, I, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I'd never even met him. And that really is just all through your work, which is absolutely um, fascinating and inspiring and just amazing. Tell me a little bit about the saying that I always see you post love on. Where does that come from? A good friend of mine that I grew up with, he's a very spiritual guy. We used to work together. He used to be my boss at a pizza shop and he was always on a different level. And, you know, I, I think when I was 16, I just was like, Kevin's a hippie. Um, you know, <laughs> so you just chalk it up to that. Um, but after Rob passed away, I would get a lot of messages. Um, you know, people who had heard what happened or saw my post. Um, and even if they didn't know the circumstances, they knew that, you know, that, that, that he had passed away and I got, you know, so much love and so much warmth, but it was really a message from him that was kind of out of the blue. And again, he'd always gone on spiritual retreats and, and stuff like that. And he'd always post these quotes, but it was a message that he sent to me. And in the end he said, you know, love on. And it struck such a chord with me. 
thought about it and I was like, wow, um, you know, that says a lot in two little words. Yeah. And I told him, I said, I love that saying. I mean, not to say I didn't read the rest of what you wrote, but something about that really, really stuck with me. And I kind of made that my mantra that like, no matter what has happened in my life, like I'm choosing to love on, like whether it was the choice to date again or be in a relationship or love yourself more. Like it was kind of my fight song or my warrior cry or whatever it needs to be in that context of the day. Turn on the news just once. And, you know, you see people who are going through things that are far worse than I have been through and, and, and they try to push through. To me, that's what love on means. It's, you know, don't give up on your fight. Um, and then love manifests in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, and, and so for me, it's, it's just, it's like, a, I guess the easiest way to say it, like, is it's my fight song. Do you think tragedy is necessary for perspective, for having a healthy perspective in life? You know what? I think tragedy is relative. You know, mm-hmm. my, what I would define as tragedy in someone else, um, may define it differently. So maybe that's, I think it's important to have something that maybe shakes up your norm, mm-hmm. um, or rattles you to kind of shake the sense back into you. So it could be something where as simple as you, you text and drive and someone cuts you off and you almost get into an accident and then you never hopefully pick up that phone again. Um, yeah. that can give you perspective or, um, but I think, you know, I hope that no one has to experience a level of tragedy to gain perspective, but I think whatever kind of rocks you, whatever scares you a little can shake you back to perspective. So we talked a little bit about, um, you know, mental health and suicide. Is there, are there any resources that we can point people to? Yeah, absolutely. I think the most important thing, um, is to not be afraid to tell someone, um, someone that you trust, um, you know, how you're feeling. You'd be very surprised. You know, people say, I don't want to be a burden. I, I, I don't want to be negative if I'm having a bad day. There is so much strength in being vulnerable that I, I really feel like people think the exact opposite of that. You know, one of my mentors said to me that, you know, um, the only weak thing that you could do is not ask for help. Um, so confiding in someone, um, letting them know how you're feeling and being honest with yourself about how you're feeling. Um, you know, there is no better person to tell you how you're feeling than yourself. Right. Um, and then, you know, I found, you know, if anyone's struggling, um, you know, as far as depression or suicidal feelings or feelings of hopelessness, there is, um, suicide hotline and there's also the American Federation for suicide prevention. And these people care. They, um, I've met some of the most incredible people and so many of them have been touched by suicide or have attempted and survived. Um, you are not alone in how you feel and mental health and depression is very, very real and untreated and, and, and not dealing with it can pull you down so far. Um, 
So I definitely recommend um, the AFSP. There are also local chapters um, for mental health, like NAMI, um, and just, but really the first step is really talking to someone about how you feel and reaching out, you know, just, just find someone that you trust and tell someone. Robin, give me the three qualities that you love most about yourself. I don't know where I'd be without a sense of humor. Um, so I have to say that that is the thing that people probably comment the most on with me. Um, they cannot believe I work in HR with some of the things that come out of my mouth. Uh, I've heard some of them. I shouldn't say that. Um, Hopefully no future employers are listening. Um, I think um, humility is probably another one. um, I've been very humbled in my life. And, um, you know, I think that having that ability really has made me a better person. And my ability to love. I have never lost that. And I see people who, you know, maybe have a bad breakup and they swear off men for the rest of their lives. You know, I, I, I see, um, just people who are so bitter or, and I could have been like that, you know, mm-hmm. but I've never given up on loving. It's been 10 years since I was married and, um, you know, I'm, I'm single now and I still believe I will have love and that I'm deserving of love. So I think that, you know, those are, are probably it. And, you know, the humor ties in with the love because you have to have a sense of humor to date at 38. Um, so I think uh, I would say that's my trifecta. Sweet Robin, I realize asking you to list only three things actually doesn't do you justice. See, there's an infinite number of qualities that you have that make you the inspired and the inspiring woman that you are. I thank you so much for sharing your story, for your sense of humor, your wit, your strength with humility and authenticity. To the listeners, thank you for listening and for joining us for this first episode on the Inspired Women, Inspire Women podcast. Once again, my name is Sila Farani Simmons. And you can get in touch with me via my website at www.celasimmons.com.